We come this Lord's Day to continue our study in the subject, the God of all comforts, particularly the comfort that we have in God's oath to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews says we receive comfort from this very thing. Christ in His human flesh, in the body that was prepared for Him at the Incarnation, was willing to serve the purposes of God, that animal sacrifices be replaced by the offering of His body for the sins of God's people. Quoting Psalm 40, Hebrews recalls Christ's promise. Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will. As we've seen, there are numerous passages in the Old Testament in which the Spirit of Christ prophesied His own incarnation, His sacrifice for our sin, His death, and His victorious resurrection. The very first such promise is found in Genesis 3, where God promises the serpent His ultimate crushing defeat. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will wound His heel. One day a son would come who would crush the devil's head and overthrow all the evil that Satan brought into this poor world. That son would defeat death and sin itself for his dear loved ones. Looking back after he arose from the dead, Jesus himself explained those very same texts that were written in God's sacred word to the saddened disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opened up his word to their crushed hearts, proving that his suffering and death had long been promised unto their redemption. But then Christ had said to God, I delight to do thy will. That is, Christ delighted to come in human flesh to sacrifice himself, to take away our sin, and to shut down the animal sacrifices that God took no delight in. God does delight in Christ's sacrifice, just as Christ does himself, and just as his people do also. Even in Psalm 110, where the eternal oath of God is made to Christ, appointing Him as our high priest, there is a sense of victory and rejoicing to be seen in Christ. Christ's rush to absolute victory will be with heat and urgency and hot pursuit, so much so that He will find it necessary to take refreshment from the cool brooks along the way. He cannot and will not stop until He has fully completed God's assignment to Him including His everlasting priesthood between us. Even Hebrews itself has already referred to Christ's delight from the beginning. Quote, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Christ is already filled with joy more than any other man who ever lived. This very same truth had already been foretold in Psalm 45. The king is all glorious, the fairest of men, full of grace, mighty and majestic in his power, prosperous because of truth and meekness and righteousness. His throne is forever, and God has anointed him with the oil of gladness above all other men. How glorious it is for us to have a high priest who delights to do God's will for us sacrifice Himself to save us. What a comfort it is that Christ is eager to obey the oath of God, making Him our high priest forever. Here with us in spirit, our Lord Jesus is now in celebration with us 
as we remember what He has done for us. We must ever seek to comprehend the meaning of the bread and the wine. They are pictures to remind us of the very body and blood of our Savior, our great high priest who delights to do God's will, even on the cross to save us. With Christ's delight to do God's will, the great irony of it all is that great grief fell upon Jesus when He was made sin for us on Calvary's tree. But it was from that grief that all God's delight sprang forth. It pleased God to crush Christ. And the joy of the redemption of all His loved ones overwhelms the grief. No wonder Christ delighted to do God's will, for thereby He has saved us. Now, we read again for review four little verses from Hebrews chapter 10. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. So it is the delight of Christ to do the will of God, to die as our sacrifice and rise again and discontinue the need of the animal sacrifices that God does not delight in. Christ disclosed that joy several places in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 16, which we read this this morning, well known as a Messianic psalm, quoted by the Apostle Peter and others several times in the New Testament, in the epistles. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Why? For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And here is Christ describing his perfect obedience to God's will because he has this solemn promise from God himself that he will not rot in the grave. Not that he will not die. In fact, this text is a, a good example of the Old Testament, the Spirit of Christ revealing that he would indeed die, but that he wouldn't stay dead. He wouldn't see corruption. He wouldn't be in the grave only for a short time, which means that this promise is a promise by God to resurrect Christ in his human body very quickly after he has gone to the grave. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one. That's a word, Messiah, to see corruption. But then it says, He will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You see, once all the distasteful work of the sacrifice has been accomplished, there's naught but joy to flow from it forever and ever for the Lord Jesus. At His right hand, He will be seated in heavenly places and be in the presence of God. He is, of course, God of very God Himself, but speaking in His humanity, you see, 
He will be the only God-man in the presence of God for the rest of all eternity and seated in so high and exalted a place as the right hand of God. We will all be there one day. But I'm sure we will be sitting at the table of the Lord and not on the throne at His right hand. And here is a text that shows in His humanity the joy that Christ has in the presence of God. Which means, of course, that Christ is totally shriven of any guilt and shame which were laid upon Him when He was made a sacrifice. All of that has been discharged by His bloodshedding. The prisoner has been set free from the prison house, raised again because the sacrifice has taken hold. And it's all because of what Christ did as our high priest, you see. All because of what He did as our high priest, that this joy overcomes the Lord Jesus at His resurrection. But also because of what the Lord Jesus did for us as our high priest. We can claim most of these promises in Psalm 16 ourselves, can't we? We can claim them ourselves. God will not leave our souls in the grave either, will He? But Christ will raise us up one day soon unto everlasting life. We will be in the presence of God and Christ in His humanity for all eternity one day. It says there's fullness of joy there. You'll show us the path of life. We could never find it ourselves. For we're dead in sin. And all our righteousness is filthy rags. But God can show us the path of life. The Lord Jesus, as our good shepherd, leaves us in paths of righteousness for His own name's sake. And because of all this, our heart is glad, our glory rejoices, our flesh rests in hope. We're not ashamed to die and be buried because of all these great promises. And they're all fulfilled in Christ already. And one by one, all but two of them will be fulfilled for all those people whom Christ represents as our great high priest. Now at the cross... Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he was merely quoting what he had told David by the Spirit of Christ way back in Psalm 22. And this was the result of God judging Christ in our place for our sins. His being the sacrifice that would take away the undelightful animal sacrifices in which God was not pleased. This was the promised sacrifice that was well-pleasing to God, the sacrifice of God's Lamb on the cross. And in that moment of judgment for our crimes laid on Jesus, He cries out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Now we must not take this to mean that God is outside the presence of Jesus because God's everywhere. All the time, it means rather that there was wrath from God, that Christ was forsaken to the wrath of God for our sin as if He had committed them Himself. And God would not intervene to stop the wrath, to stop the judgment. And in that sense, He was forsaken by God. But Christ is also identifying with 
all the other parts of Psalm 22 that are reckoned to him. In the beginning of Psalm 22, there is all the sorrow of this death, this humiliation. Why art thou so far from helping me? I cry and am not silent. You're holy. Our fathers trusted in you and you did deliver them. They cried unto you and they were delivered. They trusted in you and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of man. Despised by the people, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted him. But thou art he who took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope upon my mother's breast. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. Dogs have compassed me about. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may count all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots for my vesture. Here is a poetic description of what happened to the Lord Jesus as He hung in shame and agony on the cross there, as wicked men had put Him to death, had murdered Him, and yet they were used as the tools by which the sacrifice of the Lamb of God was made for the satisfaction of God when the animal sacrifices He did not take delight in. So Christ identifies Himself with Psalm 22 by quoting that signature line at the beginning. But then the psalm turns, doesn't it, in verse 22. At verse 22, it says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. Will I praise thee? Ye who fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him. And fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Speaking of himself. God has not despised nor abhorred my affliction, neither hath he hidden his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. Now, how can this be? Some people actually take this part of Psalm 22 to negate the first part of Psalm 22 and to claim that Christ is identifying himself only with the last half of Psalm 22 by quoting the first half of the first verse of Psalm 22 on the cross. That's what some people say. But they don't believe in substitutionary atonement. They don't believe the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And therefore, they don't believe that Psalm 22 is a description of God's wrath poured out on Jesus. But here the Lord Jesus is foretelling this truth that in the end of all this, God did not despise his sacrifice, did not despise his suffering. He did not turn away from his suffering. He heard him when he cried. And that's why he raised him from the grave. Once the work was done, once the atonement was made, once Christ had propitiated our sins before God by his blood, once God's wrath had been paid fully in the body and blood of Christ, it turns out that 
all those scoffers, they were wrong. You see, God did delight in His Son. He delighted in His Son's sacrifice. The reason that God did not spare His Son was that He might save His people and because He delighted in that sacrifice and not the animal sacrifices that they delighted in and and were experts in and were fastidious to keep. So God did not despise or abhor His affliction. God delighted in it for it was to the saving of His people. It was the solution to the moral injustice conundrum. How can God love His people and save His people from their sin and not see it punished like He promised it would be punished? Well, the solution, of course, is in the punishment of Christ as our substitute. The offering of a better sacrifice that God delighted in. You see, God laid upon Jesus all our crime and God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ, not with animal sacrifices, but only with Christ's sacrifice. And therefore, the entire working of Christ it becomes the righteousness and the rejoicing of all God's people. Look at what it says. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek Him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before Thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And He is the governor among the nations. So you see that the consequence of this great sorrow, this great humiliation, this crying out to God for why He's forsaken Him. The consequence is that in the end it is revealed that God delighted in the sacrifice of Christ. He didn't count it as nothing. He didn't abhor it as repulsive. No, He embraced it. It was His will that Christ should suffer and then enter into His glory. And the consequence is that Christ is raised up in victory, that the gospel is preached all over the world, that men flock to it throughout all ages. They remember what happened to Christ on the cross, and they turn and worship before Him. And the kingdom is all the Lord's, and He's the governor amongst all the nations. Christ praises God for His own work, and all of God's people praise Him for what started out as grievous and horrible and unjust, turns out to be what delighted God and wrought true salvation. And the delight metastasizes from God through Christ into all of God's world. And then the Spirit of Christ mentions us at the end. Mentions us, you and me. Look at what it says at the last verse. They shall come and shall declare His righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that He hath done this, that God, through Jesus Christ, has done this. He has wrought a complete and perfect salvation by the suffering servants, death in the place of sinners. And it wasn't forgotten and it wasn't wasted, but it was put to the saving use for the people of God And people will go about and declare 
the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ unto a people that haven't even been born yet. That's you and me. We hadn't been born when the psalmist wrote this. We hadn't been born when Christ was offered over Calvary's tree. We hadn't been born when He rose from the dead. We hadn't been born for another almost 2,000 years. But people would come and declare this righteousness unto people who hadn't been born that He had done this. This work is done. And it's written down. It's recorded in history. And it was foretold, what, almost a thousand years before that by the Spirit of Christ to the sweet psalmist of Israel. That is what we are doing right here today, you see. Declaring God's righteousness for sinners. That He has done this all to save His poor people. At the end of things, you see, there is the delight of God expressed for the saving of His people. And we can find this in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Notice this is a pacific or a pacify, pacifying prophecy that there will be peace in the land and that the people of the Lord will be satisfied and liars will have no part in this glorious future. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy, the king of Israel, even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. He will joy over thee with singing. Isn't it amazing how God describes His delight in His saved people whom He loves. I think we all think that God is some cold, sterile, unchanging deity that's so far apart from His creation that certainly we can't say that He loves us, can we? Certainly we can't say that He sings over us. But here's what the prophet Zephaniah had revealed to him by the Spirit of Christ, you see. But no wonder God delights in the sacrifice of Jesus. No wonder Christ delights to do His will. It's because God delights in His people whom He will save by His mighty power, by His stretched out arm. Remember who the stretched out arm is. It's the Lord Jesus come to be humiliated and to die with the sins of His people laid on Him as Isaiah 52 and 53 so clearly portray. Because God delights in His people, therefore, this flows from His delight in the sacrifice of Christ. And no wonder Christ delights to do His will. He rejoices over us. He sings over us. He rests in His love for us. And none of that was possible so long as the only sacrifice was animal sacrifices in which He took no delight. You see, Christ fulfilling His duty as the great high priest is an integral part, is a necessary part of how God will come 
to be able to delight in His people, to sing over us with joy that the work of the Melchizedekian priesthood of the Lord Jesus should be accomplished, should carry forth the sacrifice that is delightful to God so that His people might be saved as God had promised they would be. The priesthood of Christ is not only toward us, it is also toward God, you see. He not only understands us and sympathizes with us and helps us and dies for us to save us, but He also, you see, completes the offering by which it will be possible that God should be able to be delighted in the sacrifice because He delights to save His people. Our high priest, the Lord Jesus, took perfect care, you see, perfect care to satisfy God for us. He took perfect care. He's not like Aaron. Remember, Aaron slipped up on occasions, built a golden calf by accident, he claimed. He lied to God several times and God didn't didn't call him on it. I'm sure he knew that God knew he was lying. And yet, in the end, Aaron grew old and died, and he sacrificed till he was blue in the face, didn't he? And so did all the priests that followed after him, but none of them could save. None of them could take away sin. None of them could cleanse the guilty conscience. But Christ has done all things necessary to satisfy God for us, so that God's delight in us might be fulfilled and perfected, so that we are comforted by God's oath to Christ that He should be our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Have you ever noticed that the poor disciples, they lived out Psalm 22 in real time, didn't they? At least most of it they did. Remember they watched in sorrow and perplexity as Christ was offered up. They watched in terror and fear from afar, didn't they? How could He be the Savior of His people? Him who couldn't save Himself from being cruelly murdered by the Roman state and by His own people's leaders. What was all the talk of the kingdom for? They just didn't grasp the promises that had been made by the Spirit of Christ that He must suffer and then enter into His glory. So you see, they lived out Psalm 22 and... They didn't have any appreciation of what Christ always knew, which was after the humiliation, after the sorrow, after the death, after the sacrifice, after the judgment by the hands of men, but for the sins that God laid on Him. After all that, then comes the vindication. Then comes the resurrection. Then comes the spreading of the gospel truth and the righteousness of God towards the people that He will redeem throughout history, and the rejoicing for centuries, millennia, who knows, for eternity by the Lord's people when they recall that God had done this, that Christ had done this. So you see, the disciples, they lived out Psalm 22 in real life, but without the joy set before them. And Christ had warned them about this, hadn't He? He had warned them that this would happen. They still didn't perceive it. And then, you see, once Christ rose from the dead, then they rejoiced. 
Too bad they couldn't have kept in mind in view what Christ had revealed about Himself all through the pages, all through the text of Psalm 22. We read this morning in John 16 at verse 20, that famous text, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is Christ speaking to His disciples the night He was betrayed, Ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. This is Christ's admonition to His disciples the night before He went to the cross that they would be full of weeping and sorrow and the enemies of God would be full of rejoicing. But He would see them again. He would rise from the dead. And your sorrow will be turned into rejoicing and nobody can take away your joy after that ever again. And that's really the prophecy of Psalm 22 in a nutshell. The great thing about it was that after this was fulfilled in the disciples, then they marveled for the rest of their lives that God had done all this, that Christ had died in their place to save them and to turn God's wrath against sin into God's delight for the people that Christ had saved. They lived out, at least in part, the rest of Psalm 22. And we all do. As I described earlier, we all do marvel continually and always will when we recall that God had done this, that Christ had done this, that He had made this sacrifice which was acceptable to God. And Christ had been vindicated by God and brought righteousness to His people. Christ had died in their place to save them and to turn God's wrath against sin into God's delight for the people that Christ had saved. There is a song that we have sung, although it's difficult to sing. It's written by James Deck back in the mid-1800s. On Calvary we've adoring stood and gazed on that wondrous sight where the holy spotless Lamb of God was slain in His love for us. How our hearts have stirred at that solemn cry while the sun was enwrapped in night. Ailey, Ailey, Lama, Sabachthani. Most precious, most awful sight. Our sins were laid on His sacred head. The curse by our Lord was born. For us a victim our Savior bled and endured that death of scorn. He gave Himself our poor hearts to win. Was ever love, Lord, like thine from the pathway of folly and shame and sin and fill us with love divine. We watched by the tomb where the Savior lay as He entered the gloomy grave that by death the power of death might slay and His lambs from the lions save. Oh, glorious sight, when the victor rose, He liveth no more to die. He hath bruised the head of our mighty foe. For us was His victory. And around this Lord's table we celebrate the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. And we see more clearly how it is that the Lord Jesus delighted to do the will of His Father. And how it had all been mapped out beforehand 
And Christ was perfectly aware. He was not caught by surprise or unawares. He didn't paint himself into a corner as the modern liberal so-called Christian false teachers would have us believe. But he had planned it that way from eternity past. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. As Paul puts it in another place, our Lord Jesus is our perfect high priest and he delighted to do the will of his Father even as it was disclosed he would by himself unto the prophets in olden times. Well, let's give thanks to the Lord's table and for this sacrifice that it pictures for us on Calvary's tree. O God, our Father, we rejoice in Your dear Son, who was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We give You the praise that You gave Him a body at the Incarnation that He might have a human body that's sacrificed to offer up for our sins that you might be able to judge our sins in our federal head, our representative, our high priest, the Lord Jesus. And you did judge them there on the cross when he suffered and died. And when his body was torn, it was riven with nails and spears and thorns and humiliation that went with it. Oh God, we thank you that he left us this bread that he foretold over centuries what He would do and what it would perform and how we would react to it when we first believed. And forever thereafter, we cannot help but proclaim that God has done this through Jesus Christ for the saving of His people, that His righteousness might be made clear and laid upon us, we who have no righteousness of our own. Thank You for the bread that pictures His body. Help us to be able to understand and to grasp and to rejoice and to delight in the thing that God delights in and that Christ delighted in is doing the will of His Father in the sacrifice He made for the saving of our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night He was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for us. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 38 by Isaac Watts. Behold the glories of the Lamb amidst the Father's throne. Prepare new honors for His name and songs before unknown. Number 38.